If you are making a Christmas list, why don't you consider putting on your list a harmony of the Gospels? How many of you actually have a harmony of the Gospels? All right, several of you, some of you. All right, this is an advertisement this morning. All right, this is one of my favorite tools right here, a harmony of the Gospels. This is one by Robert Thomas and Stanley Gundry. It's the New American Standard Version. I think they also do the same on the King James. I'm not quite sure. But in my estimation, this really is the best one out there. And uh, I looked on Amazon this last week, and there are still plenty available. They are not stuck in a shipping crate on a California dock, I don't think. So you should be able to get one of these for Christmas. I've often thought, you know, if I lost my whole library, I lost all of my Bible study tools, and I could only just like salvage one tool, what would it be? Aside from my Bible, of course. And I, I think this would be it. I think this would be my number one tool that I would salvage from the burning and uh, take along with me a harmony of the Gospels. A harmony actually arranges the four Gospels in chronological order so that you can actually read straight through Jesus' life. A harmony also allows you to compare and contrast the four Gospels and to discover their uniquenesses. I teach a course in the Gospel of Matthew, and I require my students to get this and read the entire thing and they do a little project, and they have to show me what's unique about Matthew. What are his unique emphases? You can do the same thing with John, of course, or Mark, or Luke. Now, when you harmonize the gospel accounts, a very intriguing truth emerges in John chapter 1. And it concerns the voice of Jesus. John 1 and verse 1 introduced us to the Logos. The Word. Well, what does the Word say? We have yet to hear the Logos actually speak in John. Now, in the Gospels, we first hear the voice of Jesus when he was a 12-year-old boy in the temple. And he told his parents that he must be about his father's business, a single line from his boyhood And Luke gives us that record. We hear the voice a second time following Jesus' baptism. He was 30 years of age. This is just before he was tempted in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, of course, we hear again the voice of Jesus when he responds to Satan by quoting Scripture. But of course, Jesus' response must have been revealed by himself or the Holy Spirit to the Gospel writers For all that we know, Jesus was alone there in the wilderness, so no one actually heard him speak those words aside from Satan himself. Now, as we discovered last week, when we try to harmonize the Gospels, Jesus returned north from the wilderness of temptation, where he was tempted for those 40 days and nights. He came back to the north, and he reconnected with John the Baptist at a place called Bethany. And the scene then that opens before us here in John 1 is the next recorded event in Jesus' life. So again, Christ's baptism, just before his temptation, launches his public ministry. But this passage marks for us the true beginning of Jesus' public speaking ministry. That's what makes it so intriguing. What is the first thing that Jesus says 
in his public speaking ministry. We're going to discover that today. Now, let's recover just one more piece of the immediate context. John the Baptist has just declared in verse 29 that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All right? Now, John's role was to flatten out a road straight to Jesus so he could connect with his followers or they could connect to him. That's his whole role. Flatten out the road straight to Jesus. Level out the mountains, cut down the trees, fill in the marshy bogs, build a path straight to Jesus. That's his role. John was a voice in the wilderness crying, make straight the way to the Lord. Now, in the next section, beginning with verse 35... We actually have an example of John the Baptist putting his own message into practice. John's testimony is going to send his own disciples running down that road straight after Jesus. When they follow the road that John just cut to Jesus, then Jesus speaks the first recorded words of his public ministry. All right, so you have the whole chronology now. He's been baptized. This begins his public ministry. He's now tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. He responds to Satan, but again, he's all alone in the the desert. He comes back up to Bethany, and John says, okay, here's the road to Jesus. That's my whole role. And now for the first time, for the first time, we are going to hear Jesus speak in his public ministry. Look at verse 35. The next day again, John, that's John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. That is two of John the Baptist's disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Well, there he is. Now follow that road right to Jesus. And how did they respond? Verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And that simple line in verse 37 represents the whole purpose of John the Baptist's ministry. That really ought to define all of our ministries. They heard him say this, well, there's the lamb, and they followed Jesus. John was a voice just pointing people straight to Jesus. And now for the first time in Jesus' public ministry, the Logos speaks. So what is the first recorded thing that Jesus says to anyone after launching his ministry? Verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? Jesus launched his ministry with a question. A question. Keep reading. And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come, and you will see. So the second time Jesus spoke, he offered an invitation. Come. Just come to my residence and keep reading. So, 
They came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah, or son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So friends, this passage records for us the first recorded encounter between Jesus and three future disciples. Two were the brothers, Andrew and Simon Peter. And the third is not named, but almost certainly it's John, the author of this gospel. John characteristically does not identify himself by name. But John's recollection of the event, including the exact hour of the day in which it occurred, suggests that he is drawing now from memory, from personal experience. Now notice also here that Andrew and John were formerly disciples of John. And probably Peter may have been also. So again, did you notice how Jesus' public ministry began? It began with a question. An unthreatening, unpretentious question. Followed by an invitation. Now, to really appreciate this passage, we've got to do a little more work to get it situated chronologically. So if you have your Harmony of the Gospels, which you're going to get for Christmas this year, right? Everybody's going to do it? All right? If you would turn... To Matthew. Actually, before you do that, sorry. Before we do that, look at verse 28. Let's locate John the Baptist. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So locate John. He's on the eastern bank of the Jordan, a place called Bethany. As we discovered last week, Bethany was in the north of Israel in proximity to Galilee, but not in Galilee. Now look at verse 43 and discover what happened the next day. He's at Bethany. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. All right? So John meet, or Jesus meets Andrew, Peter, and John in Bethany, where John is baptizing, before he goes to Galilee the next day. So, John the Baptist, Jesus are in Bethany, not Galilee. Now, take your harmony, if you would, and turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. And in Matthew 4, let's locate Matthew's account. Matthew's account of the calling of Jesus' disciples. Matthew 4, friends, is frequently misinterpreted and misapplied. In fact, I was taught it incorrectly. I remember my youth pastor working this passage, and oh, and actually he misinterpreted it. He was a great youth pastor, by the way. I loved him to death. All right, okay. But the parallel passage in Mark 1 is also misinterpreted. Now, Matthew introduces Jesus in his first three chapters. Chapter 4 records Jesus' temptation. 
And in verse 17, Matthew summarizes Jesus' preaching ministry with these words, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's some real urgency there. And that is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry in Matthew. That's the first thing Matthew tells us about Jesus' public ministry. And then quite abruptly, we read these words in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, same two guys we saw back in John, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, I dare say this passage, when read in light of John chapter 1, strikes us as contradictory. It also probably strikes us as perplexing. John's gospel told us that Andrew, Peter, and John met Jesus in Bethany outside Galilee, not along the seashore, the Sea of Galilee. John's gospel also tells us that Andrew went off to find Peter, bring him to Jesus. Here, Jesus approaches Andrew and Peter simultaneously. So are you confused? The passage is also perplexing because it reads as if Jesus, a perfect stranger, just walks up to the Sea of Galilee and sees some men and calls them to follow him. Matthew twice uses the term immediately to describe how they just abandoned their employment and went off after Jesus. Why would they run off after a complete stranger? When you just read from Matthew 1 through chapter 4 and verse 18, it's like, this doesn't actually make a lot of sense. And the application often made of this passage concerns our immediately abandoning everything to follow Jesus. But I wonder, is this actually what happened? Did Jesus summon complete strangers to follow him? And that really is a crucial question when it comes to our evangelism efforts. And this is where it's really quite helpful to remember that John's gospel is not included in the synoptics. Have you heard the term synoptics? That's a term you should know. It's a term that refers to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Sin, S-Y-N, means together. Optics, of course, means to see. Synoptic refers to seeing together. Matthew, Mark, and Luke see together. In other words, there are numerous similarities between those three accounts. If you read through your harmony, you'll discover Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very often reflected on the same events. 
However, John has a great deal of material not included in the synoptics. The synoptics, unlike John, skip over Jesus' early Judean ministry. They say nothing of Jesus' encounter with John the Baptist in Bethany, the passage we just read in John chapter 1. The synoptics also say nothing about several events that we are going to discover as we move forward in John. For instance, the wedding in Cana and Jesus' first miracle. It's not found in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Jesus' first cleansing of the temple at Passover. He twice cleansed the temple. The first one is not recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Nicodemus' interview with Jesus. John the Baptist continued ministry at Anon near Salem. Jesus' encounter with a Samaritan woman. And that event, we're told, had several unnamed disciples who go into town to buy food. The synoptics do not include Jesus' healing of the child at Capernaum. All of those events, friends, occurred before Matthew 4 and verse 18. In Matthew 4, 18, Jesus summons Andrew and Peter to follow him. But there's a lot of material in John that precedes that event. And it's likely that John only gives us a basic outline of just a few events. And we know this because Nicodemus refers to numerous miracles that Jesus performed that are not included in any gospel. And in fact, John is going to tell us there's all kinds of things that Jesus did that never got recorded. All right? In other words, there was a great deal of history of Jesus' life, both recorded and unrecorded, that precedes the scene in Matthew 4. There's a great deal that's already happened before Matthew 4. Matthew 4 is where Jesus launches his public ministry in Matthew, but there's a whole lot of history preceding that. Jesus, in other words, did not call complete strangers immediately to follow him. Jesus had a growing reputation throughout Israel by the time Matthew 4 is reached. The passage really turns out not to be so perplexing after all. And it's certainly not contradictory when you realize that John is recording earlier events not found in the synoptics. Okay, so with that chronology in place, let's go back to John chapter 1. And by the way, I can still remember when I discovered this for the first time. It was in a freshman Bible class with Dr. Minnick. And he was talking about discipleship. And it was like, oh, oh, that makes sense. It all harmonizes nicely. When we go back to John chapter 1, we are actually turning back in time now. When Jesus finally calls his disciples to follow him permanently, Matthew 4, they were immediately ready to go. But what preceded that permanent call? Let's just make this really simple. How were Andrew, Peter, and John prepared to follow Christ permanently and immediately when the invitation came? Well, the answer has to begin with the testimony of John the Baptist. 
John the Baptist has been preparing the road through the desert. And in verse 37, we read of John's disciples following Jesus because they've already been prepared by John's testimony. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Now, verse 37 is not a permanent following. This will come later in Matthew 4, but it is an inquisitive following. That's the difference. Here in John, Jesus does not actually call the disciples in the same way that he does later in Matthew 4. Matthew, in Matthew, Jesus gives a blunt imperative, and I realize there's something going on there with the Greek that I won't go into, but there's an imperative as it comes over in English, follow me, right? But in verse 38, Jesus does not use an imperative at all. Rather, he launches his public speaking ministry with an interrogative, a question. What are you seeking? That's actually where he begins. Here in John 1, the time for permanent decision has not yet arrived. Rather, John 1 presents an opportunity for questions. What are you seeking? Now, when I was in high school, I used to go out on door-to-door visitation with my father. And we covered a lot of territory. My father came to Christ as a 29-year-old. When someone knocked on his apartment door and invited him to come to church. And he responded. And I think, I think it was the next Sunday. He just came to church and discovered Christ. We would sometimes just walk through whole neighborhoods and knock on every single door. And I don't mean to disparage that activity. Not at all. I'm eternally grateful for Jim, a college student from Maranatha Baptist Bible College who just knocked on my dad's door in Chicago and invited him to come to church. We actually have people in our church that have come to Christ through door-to-door evangelism. Somebody knocked on their door and came to Christ. That remember Pastor Lewis over at Cross Point telling me that that's how he came to Christ, when somebody knocked on his dorm when he was a Clemson student. A Bob Jones student knocked on his door and invited him to come to church. It works. I'm not trying to disparage that activity. But the truth is, as we would go out, we had very, very little success. In fact, I never recall leading anyone to Christ by knocking on his door. There was a man that I recall came to church for three consecutive Sundays and then never came back. But that was it. In high school, several friends and I would drive 45 minutes down to downtown Denver and we would engage in street witnessing along what was called 16th Street Mall. Lots of people out and about on 16th Street Mall. And that was a really good experience For me and my friends, nobody made us do that. We just really enjoyed it. And I had a friend on the football team who was six foot eight with really broad shoulders and just had this great big massive build. And I'd go out witnessing with him and I, you know, felt like this is, you know, great. I don't feel threatened by anybody. I got my friend right here. He's big. You can deal with him. All right. But again, I don't recall ever leading anyone to Christ through street witnessing. I'm not disparaging that. I'm just saying I I never had any success with that. 
In fact, they often grew very frustrated with those experiences, and the reason was very simple. I was thinking in Matthew 4 categories, not John 1 categories. Jesus said, follow me, right? So wasn't I supposed to just go out and declare Jesus' imperative to the world, just go up and down the street, knock on doors, go up and down 16th Street Mall, and just declare the imperative, follow me, follow Jesus, and people are going to believe. But it wasn't happening. Why don't they just leave their fishing nets and come follow Jesus? What I did not understand was that before Jesus gave the imperative, follow me in Matthew 4, he gave an interrogative in John 1, what are you seeking? Do you see why it's so important to harmonize the gospel accounts? Why John's gospel is actually so important for actually giving us the whole shape of Jesus' ministry. Before Jesus gave the imperative, follow me, he gave the interrogative, what are you seeking? He invited questions. Jesus launched his public ministry by engaging a potential convert, get this, at the level of his own interest. What are you seeking? What do you want? Jesus did not anticipate a potential convert, even one of John's disciples, no less, would immediately abandon everything and follow him. That's not what Jesus was thinking. Here's a man who was already put on the road by John the Baptist, and still he engages him with a question. Several weeks ago, I read through the testimony of Rosaria Butterfield. She told us that she spent some two years exploring Christianity before she obeyed the summons to follow Christ. What if Pastor Smith gave her an imperative on day one, follow Christ, after their first meeting, and then just moved on if she didn't respond to talk to somebody else? Well, here's what Rosaria wrote. Before I ever stepped foot in a church, I spent two years meeting with Ken and Floyd and on and off again studying Scripture and my heart. If Ken and Floyd had invited me to church at that first meal, I would have careened like a skateboard off a cliff and would have never come back. Now again, don't misunderstand. There are times when people have been immediately invited to church and they have come and were converted. That was my father's experience. But here in John 1, the interrogative comes before the imperative. The invitation to explore Christianity comes before the demand to embrace Christianity. You see the difference? The invitation to explore Christianity comes before the demand to embrace Christianity. Instead of knocking on someone's door and just moving on 10 minutes later to never see that person again, what if you were to put a question to that person? that invited him or her into a relationship? What if we were to engage people the way Jesus did here and John with a very simple question, what are you seeking? Here's some questions. What are you seeking in life? Ever ask that of anyone? Where are you going with your career? 
The microphone just fell off up here, so let me just, can we just switch to this one? Okay. Where are you going with your career? I invited a young man working in a Honda dealership where he purchased our van uh, for lunch. And that was the first question I put to him. Well, just tell me about your career with Honda. How did you get your job and where do you want to go with it? I eventually got around to talking about my faith, but the first question I had for him was about him. Who are you? Where do you want to go with your life? I still have a relationship with that man to this day. In fact, I, I pay extra, but I go up to Honda to get my oil changed. It, 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 it's 10 or $20 more than going in town, but I still do it because I want to intersect with this guy. And uh, so every three or four months, however I get my, often I get my oil changed, I go up there, I make sure I go there on the day that he's there, I know what days he works, and I call him up and say I'm coming, and, and they change my oil, and I go have a talk with him. I have a relationship with that person. And it began with this question, what are you seeking in life? And friends, you can modify that question. What do you want out of life? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What do you think life is all about anyway? Why are we here? That gets a bit more philosophical or theological. What's your purpose? In my senior appalls at his class, every student is required to have a conversation with someone who has a different worldview than his or hers. And it actually terrifies some of these students. They've never actually had a conversation with anyone in their life about the gospel. And they don't know how to do it. In fact, we're working now so that every student that goes through Bob Jones is going to have to do this four times. Freshman year, sophomore year, junior year, senior year. And we always tell them the same thing. You know what? Just go ask a question. Go ask a question. I point them to this passage. In fact, I did it two weeks ago. Just start with a question. What are you seeking in life? That's not a hard question. And Jesus' answer, or question rather, is an unassuming, unpretentious, open-ended question to a potential convert. Let's just talk about you. And the fact is, most people have no trouble talking about themselves. They don't. Most people will do that. And you are not a failure if you don't explain the whole gospel message and pray the sinner's prayer with someone on his doorstep. Now that may happen, and when that happens, that's wonderful. I once drove a delivery van that broke down in downtown Denver in the middle of traffic. And I had a 45-minute opportunity to talk with a tow truck driver who came and pulled me out of all that traffic. He drove me back to the company headquarters, and I just thought, well, let's just take this as of the Lord, and I began to just share my faith with him. That man, friends, was just ripe fruit. There was some John in his life, I don't know who, that was putting him on the road to Jesus, but he was ripe fruit, and I shared my faith with him, and after unloading the van back at the company headquarters, he says, well, what do I do? And I said, well, you can, you can pray and you can confess Christ as your Savior if you're ready for that right here in this parking lot. And that's exactly what he did. Right? That happens. But it actually happens rarely. More often than not, you need to develop a relationship with a person. More often than not, you really have to engage him. Jesus himself did not get around, get this, to explaining his own death, his own death to his disciples until about two years and three months into his ministry. Think about that. Now, the sincerity of Jesus' question was evident by the response 
of John's disciples. They ask him in verse 28, where are you staying? And their question implies they've got a lot to talk about. This is not a 10-minute conversation on a doorstep. Like, we, we, we gotta talk. Where are you staying? Can we come to your residence and talk? So friends, what if, instead of, or maybe I should say in addition to, knocking on your neighbor's door, we actually opened our doors and invited people in? What if we actually showed genuine Christian hospitality over a meal or helped our neighbors through medical infirmity or found creative ways to demonstrate care? Many people are incredibly hesitant about showing up for a Sunday morning church service. That's just reality. Well, why do we assume that a worship service is the only place to be introduced to the Christian community? In fact, for some people, that's about the least likely place. What if the next time you met for a shepherding group in a member's home, you just simply invited a lost friend? No problem. Just do it. Nobody's going to care. This actually might be a really good opportunity for us to pursue as we develop these shepherding groups. What if for a Thanksgiving meal, you simply invited over your lost neighbor? What if the next time you went out for a meal with Christian friends, you made sure to invite some inquisitive seeker also? Joseph Singapogu in the international class have really modeled this for many, many years. Just come over, have a meal with us. And if you have any questions, just, just bring those with you. We can talk about those when you arrive. In our introduction to the UBC, in introduction to UBC class, we have a series of videos that we put together and they talk about various aspects of our ministry. And we have one with Joseph and Rachel, and they record what they do with the international ministry. And in that video, Joseph uses the expression, interrogate the Bible. Interrogate the Bible. That's it. Invite people to sit down and just interrogate. Ask their questions. Whatever you have, just ask them. Whatever you want to know about Christianity, just ask me. And friends, don't worry about not having all the answers. If the Spirit is drawing the person, the Spirit is not limited by your inadequacies. If the Spirit connected you with that person, all right, the Spirit knows your weaknesses. The Spirit knows everything you don't know, all right? So don't worry about not having all the answers. The Spirit can work through that if He's drawing a person through your testimony. Now look at verse 39. And look at how Jesus responds immediately to the question, where are you staying with an invitation? Come and you will see. Jesus did not respond, well, I'm really busy right now, but we'll put it on the calendar. No, his response was just come. Well, come when? Well, why don't you just come right now? That's totally inconvenient. Of course it is. If you only reach out to people when it's convenient, you will reach the end of your life having never reached out to anyone. That is the truth. Because we are all too busy all the time. At least we think we are. Whoever said discipleship was supposed to be convenient. You can spend enormous amounts of time preparing to disciple someone and never get around to actually doing it. I tell my apologetic student, you can spend a lot of time learning how to defend the faith, but never get around to communicating the faith. That's a problem. I had a student who's actually here today, and she sent me an email, and she says, I have this friend, I'd like you to talk with my friend. 
And I have to confess, when I first saw, saw that email, I thought, oh, yeah, like I'm really busy. I'm looking at her. <laughs> and then I was convicted by this very passage. And I wrote her back. I said, okay, let's do it as soon as possible. I looked at my schedule and I said, what's the next free hour that I have? Boom, plug it in. All right. I was, I myself was convicted by this passage. All right. So friends, let's just summarize. Jesus launches his public ministry with an open-ended, engaging question. Verse 38, what are you seeking? And Jesus follows that question with an invitation, come and you will see. An open-ended question followed by an open-ended invitation. Now, watch how Jesus' ministry technique begins to multiply. Before he took up Jesus' invitation, Andrew, in verse 41, runs off after his brother Peter. And Andrew brings his own brother to Christ. Other discipleship, often rather, discipleship multiplies through families. It multiplies through close relations. Not always, of course, but very often, the first people that you can reach out to are those people in your immediate vicinity. Your family, your friends, your neighbors, those people who are in your immediate circle of influence and acquaintance. Have you ever thought about just approaching a coworker with just a simple, open-ended question and an open invitation? What are you seeking? You want to go to lunch? Let's talk some more. Now, in verse 41, Andrew makes an exceedingly important declaration concerning Jesus' identity as the Messiah or the Christ. We're going to come back to that in a later sermon. But for now, let's just read through the remainder of the chapter and observe how Jesus is calling, how Jesus, I'm sorry, how Jesus goes on to call yet more disciples. The next day, Jesus, is verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was of Bethsaida, from Bethsaida. So I, I, I keep reading the King James into this. I mean, I, I'm so familiar with this passage in the King James that when I read it in the ESV, I still have trouble reading the ESV. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida. There we go. The city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, again, there's a lot going on here in these verses that I will not try to explain at the moment. But let's just observe a couple things. First of all, you might be wondering why I made such a distinction between Matthew's, Matthew 4's emphasis on follow me and John 1's emphasis on come and see, when here in verse 43, Jesus says to Philip, follow me. Did Jesus just show up on the scene and abruptly call Philip to permanent discipleship? 
the way he later does Peter, Andrew, James, and John in Matthew 4? And the answer is actually no. There is actually a different Greek term that is used here than is used in Matthew chapter 4. And it's not necessarily a call to permanent discipleship. The term means to follow along or to accompany, to go after someone. It's not a vocational call. It's a direction. It has a sense of, well, look, I'm going over in this direction. Why don't you come along with me? Walk along with me here. That's what he's saying to Philip. So here again, in John 1, Jesus is not calling these men to permanent discipleship. Not yet, but he offers them an open-ended opportunity to discover. Philip, come along with me. Friends, this is really how discipleship often works. Just come have a look. Just come investigate. Just come and see. Now, at some point, you really do have to press people for a verdict. And Jesus himself will do that. Come, follow Jesus permanently. Two years ago, I walked through the Epistle of Romans with a man that I met here at UBC. He had a Roman Catholic background, and he was really intrigued by Romans. And he asked a lot of questions, and I did my best to answer those questions. But there, there came a point when he just really needed to come to a verdict. He didn't have any more questions. And the text was right there in front of him. I said, okay, you've got to come to a verdict. Are you going to embrace this text or hold on to your Catholicism? But that point came after allowing for a lot of questions. Very sadly, that man just turned and walked away. But again, in verse 43, Jesus offers Philip a chance to investigate. And further, it's possible that Jesus actually knew Philip knew him from a previous occasion. There is a deliberateness to the way verse 43 reads. Jesus deliberately went into Galilee. There he found Philip. The verb suggests that he may have known Philip already. He went looking for Philip very intentionally. And verse 45 also suggests that Jesus may possibly have known both Philip and Nathaniel. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him, of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip knew two things already. First, Jesus was from the village of Nazareth. People often associated, were often associated with their villages where they were born or where they were raised. Jesus of Nazareth. And Philip also knew Jesus' father, Joseph. And he's speaking as if we kind of know who this guy is. We have some familiarity with this guy already. All right. So even there, when Jesus knows these brothers, these men, possibly, he's still giving them this open-ended invitation. The passage also emphasizes how disciples multiply. One follower telling another follower, potential follower, friend, a brother, we found him. Just come. Just come see for yourself. And of course, We'll come back to Nathaniel's response next time. Nathaniel says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? We'll understand that Nazareth was a podunk little town. It's sort of like Pumpkin Town. Sorry for those of you who might be from Pumpkin Town around here. Do you really expect the Messiah to come from Pumpkin Town? There was a little town next to Longmont, Colorado, where, where I grew up, called Hygiene. Seriously, who, who comes from Hygiene? Hygiene, Colorado? Well... Nathaniel thinks, this is not possible. The Messiah can't come from hygiene. He can't come from pumpkin town. 
We'll come back to that later on. But really, friends, the heartbeat of the sermon has been Jesus' method of discipleship. And in that context, just notice one more little feature. In verse 39, Jesus said to John's disciples, Come and you will see. There's your open-ended invitation. But did you notice how Philip extends that same invitation to Nathaniel? Look at verse 46. Come and see. Come and see. It was Jesus' method, and now it's his disciples' method. Just come and see. Friends, this is the kind of open-ended invitation we have to offer the world. Just, just come and see. Christianity invites scrutiny. It invites investigation. Never be afraid to just say to an unbeliever, just, just come, just come and see for yourself. Sometimes I'm afraid we just spend too much time trying to figure out how to offer an answer to any possible question a skeptic might ask. We're always getting ready to invite somebody, but we never get around to inviting anybody because we're always preparing and we're never actually witnessing. And frankly, most of the questions that we're concerned that we can't answer never materialize anyway. You ever realize this? Most of the questions you think somebody's going to ask, they don't even ask them anyway. So friends, can we just really take this to heart? If nothing else, just say to your fellow man, just, just come and see. Just come meet my Christian friends. Come play soccer with us. Just come share a meal with us on a Monday evening. You're welcome to come to my church. In fact, if you're afraid to go in, I'll meet you in the parking lot. We'll walk in together. All right, I'll sit with you and you won't be all alone. Maybe you just want to say, look, you want to just come by my elder's house and we can go meet him, meet his wife and talk. They got time. They got plenty of time. Elders aren't busy. You know that, right? Just come on by. My Sunday school teacher. You want to meet my Sunday school teacher? He lives right around the corner. Just come on. Let's stop by. Just, just come on. You want to just read a Bible passage with me? Just sit down. We'll just, we'll just read the passage and ask whatever questions you want about it. I may not have all the answers, but that's okay. Just come and see. We do not have to persuade people to follow Jesus the first time we meet them. Isn't that, isn't that reassuring? We don't have to persuade them the first time. Jesus himself didn't do that. How about just engaging people with an open-ended question? What are you seeking? And then follow it up with an open-ended invitation. Just come and see. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the model that he's given us here in John of discipleship. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be just open to those around us. And, Lord, that we might just be willing to invite them into a relationship. And we pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.